Well, I hope you're ready for a great show today. This is the X and Hilo podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Williams. So glad that you can join us. You know, typically we focus on all things X Nilo, right? From nothing. That's the Latin uh, translation for for the website and the podcast. And really what we're trying to accomplish is getting back to uh, the way we were created to be. That's the, that's the ultimate purpose of the site. And that includes eating. That includes um, things like working out and fitness. That includes uh, brain function. That includes spirituality. But, you know, it also includes something called community. And community is the way we interact with one another. And, you know, unless you've been living under a rock the last um, few years, you, you know that racial and cultural divide is prominent. In America, um, and I think that's pretty pretty obvious. Uh, our next guest uh, is going is an expert in in this, and he's a pastor at a multicultural church on the East Coast. Um, and we're going to really dive into some things that you know are, are going to be eye opening. And so I encourage you to really enjoy this uh, podcast. I would encourage you to push this out to as many people as you can for them to hear about some of the big things that are happening in our culture and why it's important. I think this is going to be a very important one, certainly the most important show we've ever done. Weird fact of the day, and I don't think this is very weird, to be honest. I think it seems obvious. Um, A recent survey polled that 6 out of 10 people viewed race relations in America as generally bad. 40% of those people surveyed saw that those relations were getting worse. Almost double who said that they were improving. And there was another category that said, uh, I don't know. Um, This is interesting. And I hope that what we talk about here uh, in the show is really going to touch on, you know, where we're at as a culture and what we can do to address it. Um, We're also going to talk some other things. But for the most part, uh, I really, really hope that you can listen to this message with an open mind and an open heart, and that this is something that you can really bring home and and implement some of these things in your own in your own home. So, on to our guest. Our guest is Pastor Derwin Gray. Derwin is the founding and lead pastor of Transformation Church, one of the fastest growing churches in America. Derwin is a former NFL athlete uh, for the Indianapolis Colts and Carolina Panthers. Um, Back to his church, Transformation Church, is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, mission-shaped community with three campuses near Charlotte, North Carolina. Working toward his doctorate at Northern Seminary, Derwin is the author of Hero, Unleashed God's Power in a Man's Heart, and Limitless Life, You Are More Than Your Past When God Holds Your Future. He is also the author of the recent book that just came out, The High Definition Leader, which is about building multi-ethnic churches in America. So I really hope you enjoy this. Again, pass this out to as many people as you can. And let's jump right into my conversation with my friend Derwin Gray. Well, welcome back to the X and Hilo podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Williams. Uh, we've got our guest, Pastor Derwin Gray. Derwin, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always it's always good to be on with some fellow NFL alumni. It's Absolutely. always good. Absolutely, and not only not only are we a NFL alumni, but we've got some geographic, you know, kind of lineage there. I mean, I live in Salt Lake City. You went to college in Provo here in Utah. I mean, tell me a little. Let start off with your bio, man. How did you get from Utah <laughs> to North Carolina? How did that even happen? 
Yeah, okay, so I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas, and I went to a high school called Converse Judson, and so uh, one of the most winningest uh, football teams in Texas. And so uh, Earl Kaufman got recruited out of Judson my junior year to go to BYU, and then BYU came back my senior year and started recruiting me. And so I'm a, I'm a kid from kind of an urban context in San Antonio, very uh, multi-ethnic, socioeconomically diverse. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, I accept a scholarship to BYU and I'm blown away by the beauty because we don't have mountains in Texas, just blown away by just, just what I see. But then also I'm like, holy cow, where's the black people? <laughs> you know, so so there was some uh, cultural adjusting that had to take place. But as I look back now, it was so good because it taught me how to be a bridge builder. Mm. It taught me how to seek to be uh, seek to understand what someone else is saying before you seek to be understood. Mm. And uh, also, uh, I met my wife there January 15th, 1990. Uh, met her. We've been married 23 years. She was on the track team. Um, I got to play for Lavelle Edwards. We won 36 games in four years. Um, I, I guess I'm a BYU legend. Um, I went back this fall and and they were calling me a legend. And my son thought it was a pretty big deal. He was like, mm. Dad, I can't believe the way they're treating us. And I was like, yes, yeah, because you would me because I used to throw down, son. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So uh, I have a I have a great affinity in my heart for Utah, for Provo, for Salt Lake, because so much of my formative years uh, were developed there. Yeah. And so uh, and it's it's absolutely gorgeous. And I, I love, love, love to get back. Um, I still can't bring myself to mention the name of that school that's in Salt Lake that wears the color red, but uh, it's good to see them playing good ball as well. And it makes the rivalry and just the football in Utah better. Yeah. And you know, you'll be, you'll be probably upset to hear. I was at the, uh, that school's uh, basketball game last night and uh, sitting pretty close up to the front, but, uh, but I swear I was neutral. So don't worry about that. <laughs> well, you know, and, and from, from what I understand, I guess BYU and Utah are not going to play uh basketball together for a while i don't know if it's because the byu guy socked the utah player in the jaw or what i mean come on he didn't break it it should be fine <laughs> you know you know the rivalry games are like that i thought people were supposed to get a little dirty with those and uh you know it makes the crowd excited but you know i, I don't know what they what they're thinking i have no idea <laughs> yeah maybe it's uh I don't know. It's interesting. So, well, okay. So you're, you're a pastor on the East coast. Talk me a little bit through you know, your journey, right? You, you started, you're at BYU, you're playing good ball. You're, you're working, you're living up to that, that legend uh, name that you, that you've received. You know, how did you get there? You, you went to the NFL. What happened? Yeah. Well, so, you know, from a, from a, a, a spiritual perspective, I didn't grow up churched. Uh, I didn't know who Jesus was. I had no idea what the Bible was. I was like the ultimate uh, cliche self-help American dream per person, you know, do yourself, uh, uh, do your best. Don't sweat the rest. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you work hard, great things will happen. And so like I was the American uh, dream success story. No one outworked mm -hmm. me, uh, made it to the NFL top 100, top 100 pick in the 1993 NFL draft. I was number 92 actually, which the older I get, the more impressed I am with that. So yeah. uh, make it make it to the NFL, and it's like I achieved my heaven. 
But by my third year in the NFL, you know, I'm looking in the mirror going, okay, I got the beautiful wife. I've got a daughter on the way. I've got a Lexus. I'm able to give money to my family in Texas, but I know there's more. Um, I know there's more. And so it, it, it was like at the pinnacle of life, I have this existential crisis of, so this is it. Mm-hmm. So this is what everybody tells me should make me happy. Now, most people think, well, Derwin, you're making money. Surely you could be happy. But here's the deal, though. Money can't fix a broken heart. All of us mm-hmm. desire to be loved. Uh, and what most people mistake is love is actually not love. True love is unconditional. I'm forever for you, regardless of what you do or don't do. Yeah. And uh, there's only one person who can give you that kind of love, and that's and that's Christ. But I didn't know that, so I was looking for love in all the wrong people, places, and possessions. Uh, I wanted my wife to love me like God could. I, I wanted possessions and fame. And so the more I got, the bigger this hole in my soul was. Plus, I knew there were things I needed to be forgiven for. I think every human being, whether if you are religious or not, when you do something bad, you want to make up for it. So I find myself when I was doing something, what was deemed as bad, I always tried to make up for it. But even by trying to make up for it, I realized like I'm really not. Mm-hmm. But in 1993, when I was drafted by the Colts, um, a linebacker by the name of Steve Grant was on the team and he was a uh, linebacker and his nickname was the Naked Preacher. And so he would take a shower, draw off, wrap a towel around his waist and share Christ. So for five years, he would share Christ with me uh, to get me to the place to understand that there's only one who can forgive me. There's only one who can satisfy me. And the quest that I was on, there was only one who could love me unconditionally. Mm. And on August 2nd, 1997, my fifth year in the NFL with the Colts, we're to Anderson, Indiana at training camp at Anderson College. In a small dorm room, I called my wife on the phone and I said, I want to be more committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's when I had my born again moment. That's when I knew I was unconditionally loved. Like there was a physical change. I knew that I knew something was different. And that really began the journey that I'm on now. Mm-hmm. And you suffered an injury, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. right? Talk me uh, yeah. through that. Yeah, so uh, my first three years in NFL, didn't miss any games, minor injuries. But starting years four, five, and six, I started getting more injuries. And my final one with the Panthers was against the Dallas Cowboys. I ran down on a kickoff like you and I have done a thousand times, and I planted my foot to take on the block. He went one way, I went the other way, and my knee was like, something got to give, and it was my knee. And so I heard ligaments snapping. Like, I literally heard the bone grinding because the outside part of my knee collapsed into each each other. And uh, it it was, it was the second worst pain that I've ever felt. The worst pain is a kidney stone. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You don't want a kidney stone. uh, So yeah, when I hurt my knee, I knew I was done physically. I could have come back, but emotionally and mentally I was ready to close that chapter of my life. Mm-hmm. And so that was in 1998. And so the rest of the year I was with the Panthers and I was on injured reserve, which which meant I still got my paycheck, 
but my job was to rehab my knee. So I'd rehab my knee for hours and I just read the Bible for hours. And the more I read the Bible, the more I became captivated by the story of Jesus and his grace and his kingdom and his church and mm. how he wanted to transform people's lives. And that became like the dominant influence with my life. Now, that didn't mean I wanted to be a pastor, though, because I was a compulsive stutterer. Mm. Um, so speaking, preaching was not like, that's what I'm going to do when, I'm, when I get done, because I, you know, I, I couldn't talk. But the more I got to know Christ and the more I got to know his love for me, the stuttering kind of went away. And here we are wow. now. Wow. I, you yeah. Know, that's, uh, that's pretty profound. And so, okay, so the stuttering starting to go away. Are you thinking, am I, should, I go into, should I go into ministry? Should I become a pastor? No. You know what? It wasn't that clear. It was, it was more subtle. It was more, it was more like, it was more like a father with his son going for a walk and we make a stop and he goes, okay, now go over there and play. It wasn't like, this is what I'm going to do. It was like, I'm so enamored with G Jesus. I'm so in love with him. I want others to be in love with him too. I want others to experience his grace and forgiveness and mercy and power. And as that was the cry of my heart, doors just began to open up. And so I would go somewhere and speak and a bunch of people would come to Christ and then the phone would ring and someone else would call me um, to come and speak. And so from 1999 to 2005, uh, that's what I did. My wife would do the administration and I would travel and speak. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was disappointing is as I would travel and speak, I noticed that wherever I went, it was like all white or all black or pretty much all white and pretty much all black. And I couldn't understand because the Bible was like, Every nation, tribe, and tongue is going to worship Jesus in a new heavens, new earth. Mm -hmm. The apostle Paul planted churches that were Jewish people and people who were non-Jewish people or Gentiles. So that's diverse. The first people that Jesus told that he were the Messiah was Samaritans. Mm -hmm. And they were a diverse people within themselves. And it seems like God loves unity within the midst of diversity. And we didn't see churches like, like that. So we started Transformation Church to be a church that reflected the New Testament pattern of being gospel-centered, Jesus-focused, that builds communities that are ethnically and socioeconomically diverse. So in five years, we've grown from about 170 to 3,500. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just been bananas. It's been, it's been amazing. That's, that's unreal. And I mean, I mean, I've read the story of your church and I've you know, read some of your book as well. And um, but the contrast between what you've got going at Transformation Church and then what you must have experienced in the in the the nineties at BYU, I mean, there's very little diversity. Man, <laughs> yeah. What, what were you? How did you handle that? What was your reaction to that? Yeah, you know, um, my first probably two months at BYU was a challenge because I had to get used to a new culture, a new way of being, the LDS context mm -hmm. was vastly different from the context that I had, that I had come from. And so, but there are Polynesians there. Mm -hmm. um, there are um, people of different ethnicities from around the world, but probably more so with the, you know, with the eight or nine African-Americans that are usually on BYU's team, you know, we would connect. But if anything, BYU taught me how to, 
expand the horizons of my life mm. and to engage other people. Yeah. And, and, and so my time at BYU helps me now pastor a church that's probably 60% or 55% white and 45% black, Asian, and Latino. Mm. That's, that's a huge insight. And I don't think a lot of people see that, you know, and it, it, so I'm, I'm a product of, I, of an interracial relationship, right? My mother was Portuguese and white. My dad was black. And I don't think when people enter context, they don't typically say, how can I get better in this scenario? It's typically, you know, what can this, the, 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 uh, the context do to make me feel more comfortable. So, I mean, for you to put that onus on yourself and say, like, how can I become um, better in this scenario? I mean, that's, that's pretty profound. Well, thank you. Um, I didn't have enough sense as 18 or 19 year old to know that it was more of a mechanism of not just surviving, but learning how to thrive. Mm. Mm. And so, uh, but I think you make a great point. Um, so often we ask, what can others do for me versus what can I do for others? And the more I find what I can do for others, I get a greater benefit as a result of generosity. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, you know, and, and, and so as a pastor, I view myself as a missionary. I view our entire church as a congregation of missionaries. And what missionaries do is they first and foremost they listen, they love, they understand. Because I can't reach you if I don't listen to you, if I don't understand you, and if I don't love you. Mm-hmm. Huge. And, and, you know, clearly, uh, you know, diversity and all sorts and kinds, all tribes, tongues, and nations is huge uh, for Transformation Church. But, you know, when we look across the landscape, uh, across Sunday mornings in America, particularly with evangelicals, you know, it doesn't look the way that it seems that Jesus is kind of pointing towards it looking. What is your reaction to that? Well, uh, my reaction to it uh, is is several things. I'll try to uh, logically unfold them. I think the first thing is, is I try to talk to people about this is not a sociological or American issue. This is a theological issue. Mm. That for the Apostle Paul, he says that the, in Ephesians 3.10, that the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. The word manifold literally means multicolors. And so Paul is writing a letter to the churches at Ephesus who had Jews and Gentiles, Jews, Greeks, and Africans, and Arabs, and Europeans. And so when they read this, their unity across ethnic boundaries through the gospel displayed to all the universe that Jesus won. So that's my first thing is theologically when local churches are multi-ethnic because the demographics allow it, you know, if you're in Payson, Utah, you're probably not going to be very diverse. I get, get that. But if you're in a, the great majority of America, diversity's around. And if you don't think that you can be diverse, look at the diversity of the public schools near your church. That'll let you know. So for me, it's a theological conviction that God's glory through the local church, his fame, his awesomeness, Jesus's victory is displayed when social economic boundaries are obliterated by the blood of Christ. That what becomes color, what, what, what becomes important is not my skin color, but the color of his blood to make us one. Mm-hmm. Not uniformity, but unity in the midst of diversity. And then number two is 
Um, the gospel sometimes is preached so practically that we practically kick Jesus out of the sermon. <laughs> and so what happens is, is the message is basically we take the Bible and we extract some principles to give a self-help talk mm. versus what was Paul? What was Jesus? What was Peter? What was John? What was Matthew? What was Mark saying in the first century, second Jewish temple context of the Greco-Roman world? What was the context? Because if we know what the context was of what was being said, then we can extract it and apply it to our 21st century context. And so the mm -hmm. apostle Paul would have never said, okay, I'm going to make uh, an upper middle class white church for the white people, and I'm going to make an upper middle class black church. Now, let me say this though, because of the history of America, there had to be a black church for a season because black people couldn't worship with whites or they would worship as second class citizens. And mm. so there were black denominations that were started, um, also probably other ethnic denominations as well. But in this day, in this horizon, we have to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We have to be bridge builders. And that's why I wrote my book, The High Definition Leader, to equip leaders and how to be multicolored and multifaceted in how they go about what they do. So for me, this is rooted deeply in the gospel. It's rooted deeply in theology. It's rooted deeply in the purpose of the church. And then finally, here's the sociological angst. There's no question we have a race problem in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. But we as the church can't speak into it when 86.3% of the churches are homogeneous in the United States. Mm. So I advocate that, a, that local churches can become like a tutor to the culture of what love across cultural and social economic boundaries looks like in the gospel, that the church can be a city within a city showing the secular city what love and unity looks like across socioeconomic ethnic boundaries, that that is salvation. Mm -hmm. Salvation just isn't you go to heaven when you die. Salvation is heavenly people form heaven on earth through relationships to image forth the glory of God. And what's sad is even what I just said, I, I don't know how much that's actually preached. Mm. That the solution to the racial problems we have and injustice is the local church has to rise up and be beautiful mm. and to show the world. That's but good. we can't do that on self-help practical messages. We need to really excavate the glory of God through the text and to preach the gospel. The gospel, the good news is there's a new king who's making a new kingdom. And through faith in this new king, Jesus, he makes a new people who take the land. And you know what the land is? Wherever your feet are. Mm. Mm. That's so good. You know, I recently I was having a conversation with another pastor and it kind of struck me back because the, the pastor asked me, what is what do you foresee being the next thing that could kind of cause a, a, like a spiritual revival where hundreds or maybe even thousands of people get saved? And the thing that popped into my mind was multicultural churches in America. Um, and, I, you know, based on some of the things that have been happening uh, in the culture, you know, you know what I'm you see that yeah. you see what I'm exactly what I'm talking about. I thought, man, this is serves as a great place for pastors to kind of unite in this. And I think we've seen great examples of that. Uh, and so that was, that was the reason for my answer. Well, the answer I got back was weird. And 
And he said, well, that can't happen. (laughs) Just right off the bat. And I said, well, why not? You know, and he said, well, it it couldn't happen in China. They're too racist. It couldn't happen in uh, the Korean, Korea, North Koreans and South Koreans don't like each other. Well, see, uh, can can, can I, can I, can I just interject into that? Please. And let's go back to the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, It happened in the book of Acts. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they speak in tongues, they speak in the languages of the ethnic groups that are coming to Jerusalem for Pentecost Mm -hmm. to take the gospel back to their own places, right? Mm -hmm. Acts chapter 2 is God's answer for Genesis 11. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, people are separated. Genesis 12, God says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the nations. I'm going to give you a big family. Mm -hmm. Well, through Christ, he's the one who makes this new family, Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, a new humanity in Christ. And the apostles in Acts chapter 2 are praying, and they're praying in languages they don't know to reach people from different um, ethnicities and backgrounds. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. And then number two, China is not monolithic. There's different ethnicities in China. There's different ethnicities in Korea. So to say, well, North Korea and South Koreans, within North Korea and South Korea, there's different ethnicities like the Hmong who were in the Korean peninsula before the Koreans were were there. Mm. And, and, And so not only can it happen, that's God's mechanism of making it ha- uh, take place. Um, N.T. Wright, probably the um, world's leading New Testament scholar, mm-hmm. said that the Apostle Paul did what Nero, Emperor Nero of Rome, could never do. Mm-hmm. Unity and diversity. To bring Jews and Gentiles together to be as one. Rome wanted it so bad they couldn't do it, and the church was able to do it through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ and the sending of the Spirit to form these Jew and Gentile communities. As a matter of fact, it was so radical what the early church did that in Acts chapter 11, the Gentiles and the Jews who were not of a part of the church didn't know what to call them, so they called them Christians. (laughs) The term Christians comes from the church at Antioch that was ethnically and social economically diverse with free people, with slaves, with Jews, with Gentiles, rich, poor, all, all of that. And they didn't know what to call them. So they said, you're Christians. And then a century and a half later, Christians were called the third ethnicity because they were not Jewish. They were not Gentile. They were a whole new species on the earth. Mm-hmm. That the church is a new race. As Peter says, a holy nation. Mm-hmm. So I hope you hear my passion that if we're not theologically driven, we will be driven by the cultural winds of sociological practication. Mm. Mm. We need to be rooted in the scripture. So when I'm rooted in the scripture, I don't care what anybody says, no matter what adversity, because it's hard. A multi-ethnic church is hard. Man, people, I've been, I've been called a Marxist. I've been called racist. And I'm like, have you looked at our church? We're more diverse in our area. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But this does something to people when you begin to expand their view of the gospel that it's more than being forgiven. <laughs> That's incredible. All right. We should just stop there. I'm gonna... No, I'm just kidding. That's awesome. Well, okay. Talk... 
what does a normal person in your church or in another church in America, somebody listening to this right now, how do they begin to live out this life? Because it's not just about hearing this. It's not about yeah. just reading them in the scripture. What do they do practically on a practical level? Yeah. What am I going to go do yeah. right now? Yeah. yeah. So the first thing what I would do is, is, uh, is, is pray for someone different than you mm. and pray to learn from them, to hear their story, to walk in their shoes and build a relationship. Mm. Um, you know, as football players, Eddie, you know, in an NFL locker room, you got, you got, you got, you got dudes from Iowa. You got, you got brothers from Compton. You got us dudes from Texas. And then you got them brothers from Florida. And then you got white dudes, Latino dudes, Polynesian dudes, all kinds of dudes, but they're unified in alignment on we're a football team. Here's our goals. Here's your role. Let's go play. Mm-hmm. Why we can't do that in the church? Why can't we, like, only in the church do we go, well, I don't like their music. Well, I don't like the way this coach does this. Can you imagine telling your former head coach, you know, coach, I'm on this team, but I don't like it because this is my preference. We've got to put down our preferences and pick up our crosses. Mm. Last week at our church in worship, we had a banjo with country music. All right. And a black dude was singing it. All right. All right. I don't like country music. However, Jesus didn't ask me when building Transformation Church in his church, Derwin, do you like country music to reach people who do? He didn't ask me that. He asked me to pick up my cross and drop my preferences and follow him. Mm. And so a multi-ethnic church expands your discipleship too because you're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you this. Let, let me put on an inter, interviewer hat. Sure. You 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 played how many years in the in the NFL? Five. Okay. <laughs> and uh, was it were you uncomfortable in what it took to make it to the NFL? No, it was tough. It, it was it was it was it was tough. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you had to do things that you didn't think you could do, right? Absolutely. For the common good of the team, right? Of course. So you were stretched. Mm-hmm. That's what happens in a multi-ethnic church when you're around people who are different. Uh, what I call being uncomfortable, uh, where you're you're stretched, you're pulled beyond what you think you have, and then you get to the other side and go, "I'm greater as a result." Mm-hmm. And so when we have different ethnicities and social economic classes together, you're greater. So the other day in our small group. Um, it's very multi-ethnically diverse. Uh, one of the gals is from Venezuela and we got people from everywhere and her perspective of the immigration crisis is much different than someone else's perspective. But as we listen to each other's perspective, we can come at it from a gospel perspective and not have to both be Republican or both be Democrat. We could be either one politically, but Jesus influences and so it was it was incredibly stretching to hear her say, you know, um, well, if you're from this country, you're allowed to come in at a faster rate. If you're Venezuelan, you can't immigrate as fast or come in as these other groups. And I was like, wow, I didn't really know that or understand that. And so I just use that as an example of how we're stretched 
And when you're stretched and expanded as an athlete, you grow. When you're stretched and expanded as a disciple of Jesus, you grow as well. That's so good. And here's my, here. this isn't a counter, but this is something I want you to add to, okay? So, like, for instance, my my daughter, she's she's 25% African-American and she's mixed. She's very much mixed race. She's kind of like me and she's got my, my, my wife's white. So she's mixed very much. Well, well, her, a lot of her cousins, uh, they're white. They're just Irish English. Well, she got in a thing where she's only three and a half years old and she got called a racial name that to her didn't make any sense. Yeah. And the kid says, well, you're all, you're black. And you know, she's very fair skin, but clearly mixed race. And she says, I'm not black. Yeah. And gets, you know, gets a little, gets a little upset. And so I've got to address that. And so I'm having a conversation with the other kid's parent and I'm saying to him, um, you know, he's saying, well, listen, I don't really know how I should address this because this is a mixed race issue. I, I just don't know if it's the time to talk to it about, talk to my son about this. And what I said to him was, listen, you may have the, you may have that ability to wait to address this with your boy. But for now, I've got to address it with yeah. my daughter because she is this color and she does live in a predominantly white area. Yeah. And so talk to me about this, where there's <laughs> there's cultures with predominantly white, predominantly black, predominantly yeah. Latino. They don't they maybe don't have like in their direct vicinity have the ability to stretch. Yeah. Like, what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to go outside of that community to begin to, to address some of these things? Um, I think life will bring it about. Um, but I feel your angst and what, what you're saying, because my wife is white. My, my, my son, you know, he could he could he could look uh, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Polynesian, Latino. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm black. My wife is white. And, and so from early on, we began. I'm talking like two years old. We talked to our kids. Hey, you are a beloved child of God who happens to have a black dad and a white mom. Mm -hmm. And. That's where we start. And so my son hadn't experienced it. My daughter experienced it. Like, you know, like people would say to her, you know, when she went to college, um, wow, you're pretty for a black girl. And she would, she would say, well, I think that's a compliment. However, uh, my mom is white and my dad's black. The fact that in the United States of America, and here's the issue, the fact that President Obama is called the first black president of the United States of America indicates we still have a severe racial problem. Mm. President Obama, his mama is white and he grew up with white grandparents. Mm. How is he African-American if half of him is white? The reason why is because in slavery days, if you had one eighth of black blood in you and you could look white as white, but if there was one eighth of black blood in you, you were black. Mm. And we need to stop saying he's the first black president of the United States of America. His mama's white. His grandparents mm. is white. His daddy's Nigerian. You know, yeah. so so you know, you you are Portuguese and African American, and I think what'd you say, Irish or something? Uh English and French. My wife, yeah. she's Irish, yeah. Yeah, and you know what? And 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 you're made in the image of God and <laughs> You're you're a handsome man, if I do say so myself. Hey, thanks. You know, well, cool, Derwin. It's been great. Um, I'm I'm absolutely loving our conversation. We're coming to the end of our time, man. Um, but I did want to touch on one last thing. You've been a pastor for a long time. Explain mm -hmm. to me what it's like to 
to to fight through what it's like being a pastor and and persevere to the end what's what give me your secret to longevity how do you do it yeah okay so the first thing is i have to identify myself first and foremost as a beloved child of god who happens to be a pastor Mm -hmm. if my primary identity is pastor that's idolatry Mm pastor is not who i am pastoring is what i do who i am is i'm a beloved child of god which means that all of who I am, my identity, my significance, and my worth, and my purpose is found in not doing for Jesus, but living from what Jesus did for me, i.e., I am loved, I am treasured, I am his, I am valuable. So I have to start from there. Secondly, um, a rich prayer life. Mm-hmm. Um, thirdly, a rich scripture life. Mm-hmm. Fourthly, practice the presence of people. How do I treat people? I can always tell where I'm at spiritually by how I treat other human beings, particularly when I feel like they do me wrong. Mm. Uh, Having a Sabbath is important. Having fun, dating my wife, being involved in my son's life, my daughter's life. Um, So don't get wrapped up in what it means to be a pastor, but let Jesus wrap you up in his arms. Mm. That's good. That's good. Derwin, it's been awesome. And before you go, where can people hear a little bit about more in your ministry? Yes, please uh, go to transformationchurch.tc. Mm-hmm. That's transformationchurch.tc. You can get sermons. Uh, you can find all my books there and everything that you'd like to find out. Awesome. Derwin, thank you so much for being on. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. And uh, I'm going to be in touch as well. Absolutely. Thanks, Derwin. All right, man. Peace out. Thank you. Bye.